trendsetter, fee-only advocate, internationally known, and industry leader. These are a few words that I was able to take away during my conversation with Dave Grant. Dave is one of us, a certified financial planner, building his own fee-only financial advisory firm and focused on serving anyone that needs financial advice. And within the industry, Dave is widely respected by his peers in the way that he focused on being a valuable financial planner and doing things the right way in order to give our clients the best service and value and solutions for their needs. Through his columns for Financial Planning Magazine or his consulting of financial planning technology companies, Dave has a close pulse on the trends happening in our industry, and we are lucky to have him on Bridging the Gap this week. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, so you're up in Chicago, I, I hear, and you're you're dealing with some uh, great weather with snow and sun, it sounds like. Matt, it's ridiculous. I restained my deck yesterday in 70 degrees, and now it's snowing on said deck. And it's the height of Chicago spring. It's just very unpredictable. So, uh, I mean, I'm a big golfer, and so springtime means a lot more golf. So it sounds like the golf courses are loving this right now, huh, up there? They are. I mean, everyone is pretty much lining up just to <laughs> see if they can get a tee time because I mean, we've had that winter that is, you know, it's never-ending winter, and um, everyone is ready for it to be over. I I can imagine. I, I once um, I was interning uh, before I, I got in full-time work up in Boston, and they were trying to recruit me up there, and they said, well... You know, the best thing about Boston is that you got three months of summer and everything else is miserable type of weather. And I'm like, well, that's a great uh, recruiting tip right there. They bring me up there. And I was like, I think I'll pass on any full-time position <laughs> up there. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you said that you, when we talked a little bit earlier, that you were you did some fencing over in England. And then I want to get into one other aspect uh, of, a, of, a, of a fact that many people may not know about you. Uh, but fencing. So you, how, how long have you been uh, doing that? That was a passion that was a long time ago. So in a prior life, I worked at kids' camps, whether they were summer camps or you know longer term than that. And one of the activities was fencing. And so in England, I became a certified fencing instructor so I could take kids from you know learning how to hold a foil and a saber all the way through to you know attacking when someone overextends their arm and you smack them on the back and you get your point. So it was, it was a lot of fun and something I wish I'd do more of now. Is there, I mean, is there a big fencing community in, I mean, I, I know that there is fencing in the United States and I'm naive from that, but uh, is there a big fencing community in, this, in the States uh, at all or even near you from that standpoint? It's very niche. Like I can search within the Chicago area and there are, there's plenty of clubs around. They're not huge because it's just not a real, you know, widely followed sport. So there's definitely some around, right? And I think the challenge with me is still understanding it. So maybe for the another podcast when I when we started, maybe um, called fencing or I, I can't think of a clever name right now, but we'll talk about that one uh, because I, I need to learn how to I need to learn the sport so that I can start appreciating the sport because I know that that is a it is a good spot. Um, or a good sport to play. So, uh, but speaking of camps, so you wanted to go to fencing because of, of for the camps to help kids that way. But you also recently were doing some stuff with the circus, um, uh, or not a circus, but with camp. Tell us a little bit about that uh, and spinning plates on poles at, a, at four at a time. I hear. Yeah, so you know, it's one of those skills that I learned early on. It became you know, one of the skills that I was known for in camp. Of you know. I was the person who helped the kids learn how to be a circus performer. So it was <laughs> juggling, 
it was plate spinning, it was all these different kinds of things. And then we would challenge each other. So then it became, okay, who can spin the plate the longest? And then I just took it too far and ended up with four sticks in my hands, four plates on the end. And the kids just kind of stared at me like, how did you do that? I'm like, I, I will teach you. <laughs> Almost like a Jedi moment of, <laughs> come, come to me. <laughs> And so, did you? Were you? Uh, were you able to fulfill your your teaching obligations and get the kids to be spinning four plates on uh, at one time? The thing is, their hands are too small. Um, ah. So every time a kid would do it, they're trying to get these plates, these sticks in their hand, and you got to angle it in such a way so the plates don't hit each other. But their hands are too small to actually do the angle there. Um, but I will say that we had one kid go to hospital one day just because he got sick, and he asked me to come into hospital and refine his juggling skills with him. So I'm like, this class was a hit. Did, like, kids loved it. <laughs> when, they, when they're telling you, when they're, when they're laying in the bed of the hospital for you to come, they, they have one person to bring and they're bringing you in, you've done something right. I like that. Yeah, uh, it was a big ego boost. That is a big... So did you go? I guess we can't, we can't leave the story hanging. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go. Um, <laughs> so I then gave him a private lesson when he was able to come back to camp and you know, he was a good juggler by the end. He was really good. There you go. Well, I would. That's something that uh, I would take up. If you can teach me how to spin four plates at once, I'd love to. That'd be a really good party trick when I'm at a party to be able to, you know, get the fine china out and show them how I can spin the plates on a on a on, on a stick. Yeah, they were all plastic. Oh, yeah. well, there, there's no there's no china. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe once we get you know once we get good enough, then we can go to the china. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll work up to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's get into kind of something that's near and dear to, to my heart, and I, I know it is to yours with regards to uh, the industry of financial planning. Um, and I, you know, I, I've been following you for some time, and, and very, you know, have high respect for for what you've done. Um, and and I talk about you being a trendsetter setter in in many ways, but really with regards to video and using video as a marketing tool uh, to communicate um, your message and to, to create your brand um, and, and a following. And so I'd love to kind of talk through what led you down that path. What led you to become you know, so vested into video as a marketing tool for your, for your firm and for your brand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I am naturally a writer at heart. You know, that, that's really where I I love doing content, and it's therapeutic for me as well. So I knew at some point that I would have to branch out and readapt my content. And okay, if I'm creating something in written form, let's now take it into video form too. So I've done it on and off for the last six years in running my practice. And probably over the last two is where I've really refined it down into a very systematic process, bought some different people in, and now I'm churning out about eight videos a month. Wow. Wow. How, I mean, why, um, I, I want to get into how you're executing on that and some of the lessons that you learned during that process, but why do you think um, it is such a rarity for individuals to, um, or firms within our profession to use video? I mean, I, I think that you're a trendsetter because you're using video, you know, we're big, we're big and inve- invested in video. We were supposed to do this by Skype uh, and have video, but uh, it, it, it didn't work for us when we wanted to execute on it. But why do you think it's such a rarity for this industry to use video as a marketing medium? But I think our industry is still old school in a lot of ways. Like we're used, and we're a relationship business. So we will go to others, build a relationship, and they'll refer people over based on the strength of that relationship. And that's typically how a lot of people have done business. 
And then if you look at people still, they've done seminars where it's in person. So there's a lot of face-to-face interaction going on. It hasn't really caught up with the times where a lot of content in other industries is definitely video-based. There's people with followings that can sell products and make a lot of money. We haven't realized how do we get that face-to-face, very personal relationship and then transition that over to video. So I think there's that aspect. There's also the learning curve. You know, shooting video is easy if you're doing it on the cuff. Let's do a 30-second video on your phone and post it you know, natively to LinkedIn, for example. Um, that's becoming easier and easier. If you're trying to do a lot of post-production with bringing slides in, images, graphics, you either have to pay someone, and that's quite expensive, or you have to learn it yourself, and the learning curve is really steep. And it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it, it's interesting that we are, because we are, it's not interesting that we're industry or profession. That is completely normal. I understand, or an industry of relationships, right? We're a profession of relationships where it's all about relationship. When it comes to money, it's a personal thing where you have to build a relationship. What's interesting to me is that we are an industry that has yet to adopt video because video, in my mind, I build some great relationships with people by watching their videos and people have built relationships with me by watching my videos and um, mm-hmm. and it's it's an, it's a deeper relationship than you can get via email and it's a deeper relationship than you can get uh, you know via you know just sometimes even speaking in a large group where nobody can really get to know you and the behind the scenes of you which is really interesting because you know you and I I built a relationship with you of following you and knowing you via video and in your FA diaries and so um, yeah, I think that that's what's interesting is that it, it is, I think that the difficulty of it, I agree with you there. I think that that's been what's been the challenge of how to execute on it. Um, because I think video is a great way of building, um, a brand and a relationship with people beyond, you know, written or, um, uh, or email from that standpoint. So we're thinking of video as we continue going forward in this industry. So it is difficult. It's become easier to do off the cuff stuff. It's become more difficult to do some of the more kind of, uh, you know, edited and produced stuff. But where do you think video plays a part within our industry um, in the future? I mean, is it going to be a main, do you, do you foresee it being a main form of marketing for financial advisors or is it still going to be a rarity where, you know, you and I are sitting over here still doing videos, but not everybody's really ever doing it. I think it's going to be that way for a long time. I think it's going to be a trend that is very slowly picked up on because our industry is old. Um, it's, once you get to a point in your practice where you're comfortable, there is less incentive to step outside the box. And that's really where video is. I think in our industry, we use video in two ways or should be using it in two ways. One is to get content across to people and help educate, which is then part of your sales cycle and your sales funnel, if you want to think out of it in a business realm. But you also have to create video that engages a relationship. And just going off what you were saying, you've got to know me through less traditional videos that I've done. And that's exactly what it should be. I have realized that when I have a prospect coming into my office and they've seen videos, I don't have to close they've already closed themselves because they've got to know me. They're coming in with a set number of questions that they want to almost check the boxes off and they just want to confirm which services are good for them. And because they know me already, because they've watched me on video, they're ready to go. 
I just have to make sure that we're a good fit you know, on my side, mm-hmm. which is abnormal in a financial advisor client relationship. Yeah, I mean, everybody's talking about, I mean, when I, I've been fortunate to talk with uh, lots of, of advisors and, and I always ask, I always like to ask their biggest challenge. And a lot of people say it's it's prospecting, right? Like getting the right people in the door and, you know, doing videos and, and that, if that generates hot leads day in and day out, um, if you stay consistent with it. But, you know, we when we were building one of our advisory firms, I mean, the radio, which when it was big and hot, you know, that, that was, and it still is, as much as people sometimes doubt it, it drove a good number of business. And the reason was, it was because you built a relationship with these people. They tuned in to hear you every Sunday morning uh, and understand, and they learned about you because you talk about your family, you talk about where you're traveling, and then you talk about the markets and you answer calls and they see how you interact with people um, and they get to know you uh, as part of the family. And I mean, think about your favorite podcast, uh, you know, Bridging the Gap being probably the, the top of the list, um, yeah. or, you know, your favorite radio show or, you know, your favorite morning show that you, you listen to on the way to work. You feel like you know those people intimately. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's what I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying is it makes the, the conversation and the process a lot easier when when you are able to build that relationship and video is the new way of doing it with YouTube and LinkedIn and and even Twitter right now as well. And I and you know I think given some of the the processes that you've gone through I'd love to hear from you how an advisor can go and execute on a video strategy, right? We talked about off the cuff, we talked about produced, but what do they need to do to execute on a video strategy from your perspective, given that you've done it and you've iterated on it, I'm sure. Um, and then what are some of those hurdles that you faced and how you got over it? I, I think that that'd be valuable for some people that are like, yeah, I agree that video is good, but I just can't figure out how to get it done. How can, how can they get it done? Right. I mean, when I say off the cuff, there is never off the cuff in marketing. You have to plan it. Um, and your, one of your approaches can seem like you're doing it off the cuff. I live and die by my editorial calendar. Like it is six months out at all times because I understand that I'm going to get busy at times, but I need to know that, okay, on this time we're talking about this topic and we're just going to do it. There's no lost energy in trying to create new content and trying to figure out, well, what am I going to talk about now in the next 10 minutes? So it's live and dying by the editorial calendar. It's understanding what look you want. So do you want it to be a handheld, you know, selfie stick kind of look. Because once you choose a look, viewers are probably going to resonate with a consistent look from your video shoots versus you going out and changing it and then bringing in a videographer and then being, you know, having a static camera that you're moving around. And they want consistency. Like that's human nature. People want something that's a pattern that they can follow. They want to hear the same voice, see the same person, different content but they need that regularity of the same things in order to feel comfortable. So for me, I've done various different things. You know, I've shot with a more advanced camera and done a home studio with lighting and boom mics. I have now reverted back to using my iPhone, a tiny boom mic that I plug into it and lighting where I need it. And it's there's no real difference in how I've done that, but it's more just what's my personal style at this point. So there's definitely lower barriers to entry. If you just are using a cell phone and a little mic you can plug in, that should not be a problem for anybody. It's understanding what type of feel do I want? 
what content have I mapped out that I'm going to talk about for the next weeks or months and staying consistent and putting that content out there consistently. Because if you do it twice, it's almost like you didn't do it at all. You have to keep doing it. I, I think that there's, you know, you make two really good points and, and I can relate to one of them with the regards to the, the content or the, yeah, the, the content editorial calendar uh, aspect is that that is what I have seen be the biggest driver of success when it comes to whether it's written content or video content, because I did go by, you know, I, I, when I first started, I didn't do an editorial calendar or a content calendar or planning out what we were going to do. And I would just say, all right, I need to do video. Uh, I need to do a video of a vlog uh, every Tuesday and Thursday at this time. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And I try to figure out 10 minutes before and you just run out of ideas. And when you run out of ideas, you're just going to stop doing it. And it's just going to demotivate you. And so if you take some time to really build that calendar out and focus always six months out as you're thinking of and then add it to the end of the list and continue to build it out, you know going in what you're going to talk about, you're much more likely to stay consistent because you have to stay consistent to the outside world or they're just going to deem you as irrelevant from that standpoint. And it takes so long for them to start you know, just like you have to tell someone seven times before they remember something, you know, they got to see you tens and hundreds and thousands of times before they start picking up on it uh, from that standpoint. And you have to think about, you know, the consistency factor and how it relates back to the human, just in human psychology, right? Nobody likes change. And so if you're providing them all this changes where you're doing a video in here and a video in there and uh, you're doing it at this time and you're doing it every five weeks and now you're doing it every week. Nobody feels comfortable with change and they're not going to feel comfortable with what you're providing to them. So, you know, think about the human psychology aspect of what you're delivering to them and how they're going to perceive it. And so the consistency aspect is so big, which can be driven by that editorial calendar. I love that. And, and you don't, and everybody thinks you have to have this huge, you know, you know, 15 4K cameras with this big studio to be able to do it. Your iPhone now is just as powerful as many of the cameras, uh, if not more powerful in some ways than the cameras were, that we've been used in the past. So uh, I love that. And, um, you know, speaking of content calendars and writing, and you say that writing is, is therapeutic to you and, uh, you know, is something that you love. Um, you do a lot of that as well. For Financial Planning Magazine, you do a lot of writing. Um, and, um, I want to get your take on content marketing, right? Not let's get away from video. Let's shift over to the written side of things. You know, I think that advisors all have blogs on it, but I bet you if you went to 10 advisors websites and you checked out their blog, I bet you all the content is dated. Um, and there's not a going back to consistency, not a consistency of, of content in that blog. Do you believe that advisors are missing out on content marketing with the written format, which is even easier than the video side of things um, from a marketing and education standpoint of current clients and prospects? Yes. I'm guessing you want more detail than just yes. I mean, we could end it there um, and move on to the next question. So the next question, Dave, <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I do think so because in written form, you get to express so much of yourself in written words. You get to speak on paper how you want to be um, read and heard. You also get to go into as much detail as you want to or not go into and keep it top level. There's so much different things you can do with words. You know, I, when I love words. When I, I'm, I teach my boys different words and different ways to say things and different words they can use in conversation and then their writing because words are so powerful. It also, in our industry, 
there are topics that resonate with people. And that's where metrics on your website can come in to understand, okay, well, what are people reading on my website? This is a project I did um, in the last, it was probably late fall of um, 2018, is I went to my website and saw what topics were trending and what really pulled people in organically or by referrals. And I saw that pensions was a big topic. So what I did is I then said, well, that's where we're going to focus. And I say we, I have a team that I work with. And that's where we're going to focus for the next four or five months. And we're, all of our content is going to be geared towards pensions. And then that's going to be the basis of our marketing campaign. That's going to be the basis of our freemiums on the website. We are going all in on pensions because it's working organically right now. That has resulted in new clients. So as, this isn't just something me just pulling out the air. This is I then took that pension content written form. I then took it to LinkedIn and found people locally that worked in a company that had pensions, sent them pieces every now and again. Someone turned around and said, I have a lot of questions about my pension, as well as all these other questions that I have. But the fact that you're sending this to me now is really poignant. Let me sit down, me, you, and my wife, because I think we need to work with you. That's there amazing. was huge ROI there. Like This is not the fact I like doing it. This generates money for my business. I mean, and that's the thing. That I think that when you talk to financial advisors, we're always looking for a quantitative, um, a quantitative uh, metric for the ROI or for marketing, right? How can we judge if marketing is being successful? And what you're showing is a a true ROI that is delivering. This is the number of hours I put in. This is the number of people that I've gone that have come to my website. Number of people that have read about pensions, that read every blog. I can see trends, and then you can see people actually coming in. Uh, based off of the data that you're gathering from that website, and and and, and tell me, I mean, the the content that you're writing and the blogs that you're writing, yeah. And I know you shared a story of, of someone coming in and and, and and sign up as a client, but is that, I mean, that's is that your main driver of your of your of your current prospect funnel and um, channel right now? Is content marketing? Is it driving a real funnel for you day in and day out, or week in and week out? Yes. Yeah, I would say that 75% of my new clients are coming in either by local search or content marketing. And when they find me through local search, that has to get backed up with content that is relevant to them in order for them to become a client. So it's almost 100% is content driven because there's a ton of people in locally, but I have to be the right person for them. So yeah, I mean, it is probably the, the main thing I'm putting time, effort, and money into I know that other people you know, do the ROI route of, oh, I need to see centers of influence and gather these relationships. I haven't done that. My, all my time and energy has gone into content marketing because eventually that's going to work by itself. I can turn that off and there's going to be content that resonates over time that will still bring people in. It's evergreen. It lives on forever. I mean, how many years, just, just out of curiosity, how many years have you been doing content marketing uh, for your business ever since you opened up your doors or, or even before then just to create your brand? I started before I launched my own REA, which was six years ago. And now I was doing another REA, which was doing content very specifically to teachers. So then when I opened my REA, I was very specific to teachers as well in opening that. I rebranded three years in for a number of reasons, which we won't go into here. But that content still brings people into the door. Like four years later, 
they will find out, okay, he works for teachers, he's married to one, he actually knows what he's talking about because I've read these last three blog posts that he did. That's probably the guy I need to work with. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's the beauty of the internet of and and um, that this content stays out there, and people always are going to be searching for it. It's not just a one generation thing; it's a multiple generations are always going to be searching for these same questions. A lot of people are going to have these same questions at stages of life that are relevant stages of life where you want them to be your client. And content marketing has helped with that. And I, and, and we've talked a lot about the marketing side of things, and so I want to shift gears a little bit, but I think it can relate or it goes in parallel with content marketing with regards to technology, right? You know, the, the you know, with Google and with YouTube and with LinkedIn, your content can live and breathe for long periods of time, if not forever, where people can find it um, and, and relate to you. And so, you know, I, I'd love to, to get your perspective given how long you've been in the industry and you've been around the industry of how it's changed from regards to a technology standpoint uh, and the technology needs that an advisor has these days relative to before in order to create efficiencies, in order to communicate more effectively, in order to create a, an engaging client experience. Um, I'd love to know more about how uh, your perspective on how that's changed over time. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely has changed. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of framework behind that is, you know, when I started working at an REA um, in my first job, you know, I worked up from a receptionist all the way up to being, you know, the lead power planner there before I trans- transitioned out. That was a job that had some technology in it, but all of our reports were Excel driven. So you had a lot of time generated, so a lot of time in generating those reports, but also a lot of room for error as well. Then when I compared, okay, we could do all of this in technology in a third of the time, which leads, you know, opens a whole lot of doors. Either you can take on three times as many clients or work only a third of the time and do something completely different. Why would you not do that? Because you're getting the same planning results. So in terms of what the client understands and the results that that client's going to get at the end, it's still the same. But you are doing three times the amount of work as an advisor to get there if you're not doing it with technology. So in my eyes, if you can cut out some time or you can increase your accuracy or improve the message to the clients and you can get there through using technology, you're stupid not to. And and I agree with that 100%, 110%, even though you can't go that far. But why why then do you think that people are, are, are in our industry uh, and maybe I'm wrong, and, and please tell me, why do you think that our industry or, or people that work within our industry are so um, you know, against adopting new technologies uh, that, are, that are helping create these efficiencies? Why do you think they're so, it takes them so long to get to that point of adoption? Well, I think if you are working in a larger firm, let's say, for example, if you have 100 clients, and that's not necessarily a big firm at all, but if you can say, okay, we, are, we have 100 clients and we're changing our financial planning software, you have to take 100 client scenarios and move it to a new software. That's a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying, okay, if we're going to go through this technology cycle where there's going to be something better, newer, that's more efficient, and we're going to do that every three years, that's big. Mm-hmm. Like, that is nothing to just ignore. Um, so I think that's a big reason why there's not a lot of 
adoption in going to newer and newer technologies because the transition is huge. Mm-hmm. And that's just one technology. If you're now looking at performance reporting, CRM, and other things, and you're having to transition all these clients over, I mean, you're going to need a full-time person just for technology transition, and that's their full-time job. Yeah, so that's a that's a problem. The change cost is so high, and I mean, and then you go into one of the LinkedIn articles that you recently posted was about um, you going on vacation and and a, and a texting solution that you've used before, and and in my eyes, this is a solution or a technology that is widely used by everybody's clients in the firm, no matter their age, from 20 years old all the way up to 90 years old texting with their grandkids and their kids. Can you elaborate on how you utilize technology or texting within your firm? And then I'd like to kind of continue that conversation. Why are more advisors not using technology or, or texting, or are they? And, um, and, and, and why do you think it's so effective? I mean, I think one problem in our industry, I'll tackle the last one first, is compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on how you look at it, some compliance departments run firms because it's so big. It's such a behemoth. There's a lot of fear around it. And if you're not careful, that will override any decision towards efficiency because compliance gets in the way. For me, compliance is a hassle. I'm going to run my business and then compliance will come up behind it and tell me if everything's okay. If it's not, only then will I adjust my approach. And I will do that quickly because I don't want to be in violation of compliance for too long, but I am not going to lead with compliance telling me how to run my business. Yeah. And so I think the bigger your firm and the more involved you get with compliance and management and all of that, that just gets in the way of efficiency and using new technologies. So for texting in particular, you do have to find a compliant platform that you can use and there's, there's plenty out there. Like They're definitely coming to the forefront now in our space. But then you've got to build up policies and procedures on how to use it. You then have to introduce it to clients. You've, you, you have to go through a number of steps in order to make sure it works, which shouldn't be a deterrent, but it's still a process by itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, the way I'm using texting with clients, it varies per client. Some clients are now almost moving exclusively to a text relationship. And it's you know, confirming meeting times, it's them shooting me a message of, you know, such and such is going on. If it's too long for a text message response, shoot me an email or we can chat on the phone. But that's the way they prefer to communicate. For others, they are saying, this is great. Can you just confirm the meeting time that we have on the calendar? Just shoot me a text whenever that's appropriate. So it's client specific, just depending on how they want to interact with me. But it's happening. And Funnily enough, it's my older clients doing it versus the younger ones. I love that. I, and I, uh, I, everybody, you know, we, we talk to a lot of people about texting and, um, and they say, well, no, my clients don't text. You know, that's probably for, it's probably for a younger generation. I say that is the opposite. The older clients are texting more and more now than ever because that's how they communicate with their grandkids and their kids and they stay in touch with them. Um, and, and, and it is the older clients and I love to hear that. Uh, from you as well, and you know, I want to I want to uh, be respectful of your time, and so I want to transition to buy sell here in a second. But before I do, I always like to you know bring in a, a crystal ball and, and get people's opinions on where this industry is going from really a, a technology uh, efficiency. And, and we talked a little bit about marketing. Where do you see uh, our industry in the next ten years, in the sense of how you think it will look different than it does today, or? Will it look very different? It may not, um, but I'd love to see kind of what your crystal ball says. 
I mean, I think it will look different. You're definitely going to have some early adopters out there who are going to embrace this change a lot more and a lot quicker than the majority of people. You're going to have some people who will not change until they retire, and that's the nature of the beast. I think AI is going to play a big part. Um, I think I actually wrote about this for one magazine. If you can bring a client in, put a virtual headset on, and then show them what their retirement looks like, you're going to get such a difference in reaction because they're going to see, oh, this is way better than we thought. Can we actually live life a little better now? Or they're going to see retirement that looks very scary. Your behavior change is going to happen in an instant. And they're going to save more, work longer, do whatever they need to do to not get that picture. Behavior change right now is difficult for clients because you're working with a description of what could happen and there's no visual there for them. And that's what people really drive on. They drive on visuals. So that's, I think that is where we're going to get a lot of power in our industry. Will it happen in the next 10 years? I don't think so. The technology might be there, but adoption, I think we're, as an industry, quite slow on adoption. I mean, I think that that's an amazing point in, in terms of that visualization because it's so hard for someone to see something that's 20 years away, you know, and that, that's, you know, half their lifetime, right? When you're telling a 40-year-old what's going to happen to them at 65, I mean, they've only, they've, you're talking about 25 years away, which is they've only lived 40 years. That, that's a large chunk of their life away, and so they think that's going to be forever uh, away. But I think that, you know, the ability of showing them that is, is huge. And I think that also on the other side of the, of the coin is, training employees, right? How do you throw them into situations and utilizing AI to train them for different situations to be able to, to get them up to speed uh, and being able to add value to the firm and to the end client a lot more, uh, a lot quicker and a lot more effectively? I think that you're right. VR and AI and all that type of stuff is going to play a part, but it's going to take those early adopters really embracing the technology um, and, and learning from it and helping to iterate it before it gets into the kind of the mainstream hands. But I, uh, I can see that vision, uh, and yeah, maybe more than 10 years, but, uh, I actually sure hope it's less than 10 years away, uh, because I think it could be really helpful for our, our industry. Um, so with that, let's move into buy or sell. Uh, I love buy or sell. It's my, uh, ability of trying to really truly bridge this technology and marketing conversation with, uh, you know, the, the buy sell of the investment management side of the business. So what I'm going to do is I have four, uh, four points here, Dave, and I'm going to just go through them and if you agree with them, say buy. If you disagree with the statement, say sell. And you know, take a quick second to, to talk about why you're leaning one way or the other. Uh, and we'll see whether you're a, a, a bull or a bear with regards to the set of questions or comments that I put out there. Sound good? It does. All right. First one, buy or sell. Robo solutions should be utilized within a financial advisory practice to provide the ultimate value to the end client. Total buy. If you can get any efficiency from technology, and if you can engage a second generation of a client by seeming to be more advanced in your approach, do it. Why hesitate? And I agree with that 100%. I think that some of the people's feedback is that it's uh, it, it, because it's going to take time, right? It's a time that's going to be, I might have to deal with that the ROI, going back to ROI, which we've talked about a few times here, isn't going to be there. But I, I, um, I think that it, it will longer term and it's creating an efficiency for you that you're going to learn something that you're going to be able to implement on both your high net worth and your your younger clients as well. Um, buy or sell, driving value for clients has become more difficult for advisors as new technologies have been introduced into our industry. So, um, value is in the eye of the beholder. 
So has it become more difficult as new technologies have come in? No. I think the value is in the relationship. And as a professional, it is your job to establish a relationship and use tools to back up that relationship and make it more effective. So then I'll, I'll turn this question around for you for real quick. I just want to go down this hole for a second. Is Do you think that advisors have leveraged technology to or focus too much on technology and less on the, the relationship because they think that the technology is going to drive the value? Do you think that, that it's kind of like actually been, uh, uh, it's just changed the focus, which has led to a detriment for the advisor? It may have done. And let me give you a scenario where I'm kind of pulling this from is, if you're going into a client meeting and five minutes before you look into your CRM and you're reminding yourself of the names of their children so you can go into the meeting um, or their wife that is coming in and she may not have come in you know, too many times before, um, being very stereotypical here. If your CRM breaks and you go into that meeting and you don't know the names of these people, do you have a very strong relationship with that person or are you relying too much on technology? Mm. Mm. That's a fair point. It's a very valid point. If, uh, if you, yeah, yeah. What happens when the internet goes out and you can't get to your CRM anymore, and you got your clients still sitting outside because the car still works? Um, that is a good point. I don't have an answer to that, but I think that that is. I think that people are relying on technology, whether it's, you know, they just rely on their financial planning, you know, solutions to do everything, but they don't necessarily know the ins and outs of why those solutions are coming about. Um, and, and, it, and it hampers sometimes the, the relationship there. All right, third one, buy or sell. Innovation for the financial advisory industry will have to come from outside the industry as opposed to within the people or companies inside our industry. Buy. I think as an industry, we are such inside of a bubble. Like we know the way we're supposed to do business. Um, but you know, the example we mentioned before, if you can bring a VR headset into a meeting and just completely change the behavior of a client, that did not come from insider industry. No advisor created that. That's going to come from a completely different realm of life. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that there's a, the outside of the industry is going to spur the innovation, I think, um, and it's going to then infiltrate into our industry. All right, last one. Speaking of outside the industry, over the next seven years, the subscription model that Netflix has made so common will not only infiltrate the industry, but overtake the AUM style fees advisors currently charge, meaning more than 50% of the firms will utilize some form of a subscription style pricing. So I think you're being generous on seven years. Wow. I give it 20. I give it 20. All right. Um, and I definitely do not think it's going to come close to overtaking AUM fees. That is the way our industry has been built. That's the way that people are familiar with. Until we get at least two generations removed from that, that are used to subscription price models as the only way, then I think it, it needs more time. Now I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit and, um, and you can avoid it if you want, it's okay. Uh, but is I mean, are you a fan of the AUM style? Are you a fan? Do you do you believe that that uh, is what um, it, it drives the kind of the, the 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 value is aligned on the AUM side of what the the value that the advisor should be providing overall to the client? I think every pricing model works for different situations. 
So I think the subscription model works. You know, I used it for a, a big portion of my practice and I actually no longer use it because I transitioned my practice into going a different direction with different value proposition. But I think AUM is still the main fee structure that people are comfortable with. And if you're dealing with older clients who have a bulk of assets, that's what you're going to bill against in terms of providing your value. And that's the way it's been. I don't change is hard, like anywhere. So to get away from that model that really drives our industry is just going to take more time, more education, more effort. Um, and if it's working now, people aren't going to change something that's working. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. I think that that is, it's a difficult challenge. Um, and it, it's going to take a lot of education, not only within the industry, um, but to the people you're selling to. And it's going to lengthen a sales cycle. No question about it, because it's going to be different. Um, well, so it, it seems like you were a little bit split on the bull or bear. That's okay. That's all right. We had a few bulls, a few bears, and uh, and, and that's what we get through with uh, with buy or sell. And so I want to wrap this up um, so that you can get back to uh, doing what you do best of serving clients. Um, but I want you to give one closing thought, if you could. Take 90 seconds or so. And to our listeners out there, you know, what is the one thing that an advisor listening to our show can take back to their firm tomorrow um, and implement it to get a great boost in efficiency and an ultimate value for their end client? All right. I'm going to take this on a detour. I'm going to scrap your question. I hope you're okay with that. I am completely fine with that. I just want to give you a, a, a lane, but you can go into a different lane. That's okay. Oh, lane? No, we're going in the sky. We're getting off the road. I like that. Um, so my journey over the last, I would say, 18 months has been very difficult as an RIA and just as an advisor in general. It's been a lot more emotionally draining than I thought. So that has led me down the rabbit hole of how do I care for myself and my mental health? I now have a therapist. And as a man, that's quite difficult to admit to. But when I see people, I see them differently now. And I think it would be appropriate for other people if they are seeing others in our profession to treat them and view them a little differently too. We work with people in the most intimate parts of their lives and we have to be emotionally invested in that. And by choosing to do that, we're taking emotional energy out of ourselves and putting it into other people, which potentially can leave us drained and mentally impaired in a nice way to put that. So instead of coming to advisors and having a an ego game like we can do sometimes, like Alan DeGeneres says, be kind to one another. You don't know where people are at in their practice, in their life, with their clients. Really care for each other when we're meeting professionally and that way we can do the best good for each other. I... Um... I can respect that detour a lot. And I think that that's something that is not talked about enough in our industry. Um, and, and I think it's one of those kind of, for some odd reason, a taboo topic, but um, I, I can appreciate that. I am, I am there with you, Dave. I have a therapist that has been the best thing that's ever happened to me uh, in terms of helping me um, you know, learn about myself and, and, and how, to, how to understand others. So uh, I, that is one of the. I might have to rank that in the in the top tier of closing topic thoughts. Not not to, to against anybody else's, but I think that that's something that is not talked about enough. So I can appreciate that. Thank you. Um, 
And, and today, in my closing thought, I'm going to start with really a simple definition. The definition of embrace. It is to accept or support a belief, theory, or change willingly and enthusiastically. Why start with a definition? Because I am a firm believer that within our industry, this is the word or action that will separate those that see success in the future and those that may just get by, but will always be striving for more. Our industry is changing, but this doesn't mean that everything you do today is going to be irrelevant in the future. Actually, many of the fundamentals of the business will be the same, but we will likely be executed on or they will likely be executed on or acted upon with slight variations or via newer technologies or processes. And many aspects of the business won't change and won't be impacted by any new technologies or theories as well. But the firms and advisors that accept the things that will change and don't try to resist it, but rather embrace it, will be the firms that gain the benefit of the change and stay ahead. Not being better traders or stock pickers or finding the hot investing trends, but rather will be the ones that provide more to clients, impact more lives, further fulfill more families' desired retirement goals, and maintain relevancy in a quickly changing and evolving industry. Change, as we've talked about on this, uh, this podcast today, is difficult whether it be professionally or in life. But change is inevitable in both as well. Many struggle and fight the changes that happen and they tend to see a setback. Others embrace the change and progress. As a leader of a firm or a member of a team, you have the ability to make a decision on your future right here, right now, and today. Will you embrace the changes happening or stick true to your ways and fight the changes that are occurring? To Dave Grant, to everybody out there listening, I really do truly appreciate your time that you took away to listen today and that you dedicated to providing to this podcast. And we'll be with you next week on Bridging the Gap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 